I would encourage you. I know that you know the coronavirus has people kind of locked in their homes a bit. I would still encourage you tomorrow on Memorial Day to just take a moment and remember those who have fallen to give, in our, to give our country the freedoms that we have. And, and speaking of that, I want to transition just a little bit to talk about the surveys we had you guys fill out this week about meeting together in person and when that happens. We've noticed as we look at these surveys that element is pretty evenly split on when we're supposed to meet and how we're supposed to do that, whether it's masks or gloves and six feet and, and all of that kind of stuff. The first thing I would encourage you to do is remember that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to serve one another. Too often we take our own views and we run with them so strongly that we start to judge everybody else around us. At Element, we hold the things which are called open-handed and closed-handed issues. Closed-handed issues are things that we will die for, and we will die for the deity of Jesus Christ, salvation through Him alone, His death on the cross, His resurrection. Those are non-negotiables. Open-handed issues are, if you want want to wear a mask or maybe not, but don't judge one another in that. There is so much division that is happening right now between how people are viewing this coronavirus and not. So when we gather together, first off, when it happens again, it's not going to be in political protest of anything. We want to make sure that we are a people who are honoring the place that God has placed us in our society. So we're not just going to open and say, you know, forget everybody else and what they think. We want to do it in a way that actually honors where we are in our state of California. And I know the president recently just said he wants to declare all churches essential, which is great. Yay, I applaud that. But that doesn't mean that our governor is going to change things. And so what we want to do is be a people who honor what God calls us to in the midst of where we are, especially in the places that we are. And when element is allowed to meet, and we do start talking about that again, it doesn't mean that you even have to come. We will still live stream, and if you feel like you're not comfortable coming, that's okay. We don't want you to feel like there's any judgment either way, coming or not coming. We'll probably do different services and saying, hey, if you come to this service, this is the one you want to wear masks in. If you don't want to wear a mask, we're going to do this service here, but you can still wear a mask there if you want. You just don't have. We're going to do different things to try and meet all the things, but also realize that as everybody has an opinion, you know what they say about those? I'm not going to finish that, but you know everybody has an opinion, and we want you to give us also as elements some grace. Because we're going to navigate this as best as possible to honor who Jesus is in our lives. And hopefully in the end, that will also honor you as a people. We want to be those who lift up Jesus first in all that we do. And if we want to do that as an organization, we want to then have that go in how we disciple you as a church. To honor Jesus first, to love those around us. And if someone comes to know Jesus because someone else decided, I'm going to wear a mask to this service and we were loving and graceful to that person, well, let's be those people. Let's be about Jesus first in all that we do. And you're going to hear more about meeting together soon, but I just wanted to get that out there right at the front because we do live in a country that has lots of freedoms. So let's be a people who honor the freedom of one another in that. So, Welcome, as I said, to Element. If you would like to, you can download this app. It is called YouVersion. And in YouVersion, when you open that up, you can click on More and then Events, and we will come up by GPS if you're somewhere around Element Santa Maria. If not, you can type in the zip code 93455, and we will come up, and you will get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, the announcements, the link to the survey, all the things that go with today's message. And my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. This is the reading of God's Word. This is Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. 
And it says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and remind us that you are with us no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through, and that you lead us and you guide us and call us to continue to speak about who you are and to places where people feel depressed or in a funk or or lost or alone. You call us to continue to speak in those places because we understand that you are with us in all that we do. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is Acts part two, week 19. We're actually going to get to chapter 18 today. Well, yay, it's, it, it's so great. Acts 18 comes right after Acts 17 because one, numbers work like that, but they go together to show what happens right after Paul gives one of the greatest arguments for the gospel, I think that he does, in the book of Acts, and what happens directly after that because only a couple people believe from that message. Now, it does grow in Athens exponentially, but Paul doesn't see that yet. Paul just sees the couple people who believe. And today, I want to hopefully end in a place where you maybe don't see so much of the Apostle Paul kind of in a funk of depression because he was beaten down for so long. Sometimes we can relate to that because of the COVID-19 and what we're going through. There were a lot of failures that Paul perceived happened in his life. So how can we find hope in the midst of that as well? We sit on this side of history with the New Testament written. We see Paul as this giant, but Paul was just a guy. He loved God, he was called to a certain ministry, and he did a lot of things that actually failed. In the 19th century, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, in his book Practical Religion, speaks of zeal like this. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, through-going, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees only one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp he is made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Wow, that's a lot, right? I mean, I read that, and I hope you don't feel like I'm not very spiritual, but I'm like, wow, there's a lot there. And I feel a little overly uh, emotionally tired when I read something like that, because it sounds a lot like Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out. And a lot of people who are very zealous, not that there's anything wrong with that, but a lot of people who are very zealous have a hard time understanding why anybody would have a moment of weakness. And yet I think that Paul did. Not about his faith and how God had rescued him, but really more about his calling. I told you last week, Paul ends up in this most elite place in Athens, the Areopagus, and he brings his arguments together about Jesus speaking about the resurrection. Paul insists that he and his hearers are now living in a brand new age that God is bringing about in the history of the world, a moment in which the times of ignorance, as Paul says, are now being set aside. These times where we are now able to know who God is because of what he is doing in the world in the person of Jesus. And he speaks about the evidence of this, 
that any genuinely open-minded agnostic should be able to look at and take into account if they're intellectually honest. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says that God has set a time that he is going to bring together all of the things that he has been saying throughout Jewish tradition and history. That God is going to set the world right again and call it to account. And this is what it has meant when God is going to judge the world. So how is God going to do this, to judge the world? Well, Paul tells the people in the Areopagus, he's going to do that through a man, and he's using that words because Greeks would understand that, a man who he has appointed for the task. And who was, who is that man? Well, of course, that's Jesus. And I know you're watching a live stream, you're not in church, and I know in church when I ask a question, half the time the answer is Jesus, but still like that on a live stream at home too. Paul does not actually mention by Jesus by name in the Areopagus though. Now he talks about Jesus in the marketplace, but in this speech he doesn't. Now, how do we know that Jesus is the coming judge though? Paul says that God raised him from the dead. So now he's pulling all these things together. The Jesus he spoke about in the marketplace and the person he's talking about in the Areopagus, it is all this one person. And we know this. We can trust what God has done because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now the argument of resurrection is ludicrous to people in Athens and Paul knows that. Resurrection goes directly against the founding charter of the Areopagus where Paul makes this argument itself. In the 5th century, there is a play by this Athenian, and his name was Aeschylus. I know I might butcher it, but whatever, I didn't live back then, but that's his name. And in this play, the god Apollo inaugurates the court of the Areopagus, and one of the things he says, if, if it's binding forever, is when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. So, as a founding charter of the Areopagus, resurrection is ruled out according to their ground rules. But Paul comes, and Paul firmly places that right back into the middle of the argument. Paul says, this is the fulcrum around which the world actually turns. The resurrection explains why and how Jesus can be the coming judge and the one that takes judgment for us because of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, Paul will speak about the resurrection for the rest of the book of Acts very plainly. So open your Bibles to Acts 17. I know I said we're going to Acts 18, but we've got to start there to move into Acts 18. So here, when Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it is that it is showing Jesus' divinity, but it's also showing that in Jesus, God's new world is beginning. He's being raised from the dead the first day of a new week, like the first day of a new creation. It's the foundation, the beginning of what God's going to do in the entire world. And so Paul calls people to two things. First off is to repent, to return to who God is calling us to be. Secondly, how do we do that? By turning to the living God. We trust God for restored, renewed relationship which comes in the person of Jesus. Some people mock Paul and a few believe. Acts 17, verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demaris, and others with them. Now Dionysus, I told you this, becomes a leader in that church in Athens, becomes the first bishop in that city. He will also be martyred during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Some men and a woman and Luke list them by name, and that's it. 
Not that one person isn't worth Paul, all Paul's efforts, but Paul has been having a pretty hard time no matter where he goes. So chapter 18 then starts like this. After this, after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, many people have these ideas. Why did Paul leave Rome so abruptly, or uh, Athens so abruptly? Some say he was tired of the complacency of the Athenian people. Some believe Paul could have been saddened that the message didn't reach more people. Some say that Paul's life could have been in danger again. Some commentators like F.F. Bruce and William Ramsey, who are usually decent commentators, believe that Paul thinks that he made a mistake in how he preached about Jesus in the Areopagus, so he wants to go someone else, somewhere else to start over. Now, I don't think Paul made a mistake in how he spoke about Jesus in the Areopagus. Don't get me wrong, Paul did make some mistakes in his life, but I think Paul's argument there in the Areopagus was brilliant. I don't think Paul ever failed to speak of the cross and the resurrection. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, what you do is you get a picture of Paul's state of mind and what he is going through here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing, uh, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling." Now, Acts doesn't tell you what Paul was feeling, but Paul tells you what he was feeling when he writes this letter to the Corinthians. And this is why I think Paul felt really beat up and depressed as he walked that 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. Because since coming to Europe, Paul had suffered a terrible beating in Philippi, civil rejection in Thessalonica and Berea, indifference in Athens. Maybe he got tired of being made fun of in Athens because they essentially called him a hillbilly, even though he was probably more educated than most of the people in the Areopagus. All over Rome, there's an air of anti-Semitism. And Paul, in speaking about Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, those are very Jewish terms. And so he's speaking about a very Jewish thing. There's anti-Semitism. And everywhere Paul goes, it seems like he is alone. And I think that weighs on his heart. Being alone can do that. Can anybody relate to that? COVID-19, can you relate to where we are? Paul gets to Corinth, and he meets this couple. And we're going to spend more time talking about them next week. They are Priscilla and Aquila. Paul, seemingly feeling beat up, ends up in a friendship with a couple who lost their business in Rome. Why did they lose their business in Rome? Because of government interference that came in and pushed them out. So they had to go somewhere else to start over. Can anybody relate to that? Aquila and Priscilla had both come to Christ and into Paul's life. It's really almost impossible in the text to tell which one of those came first. In Paul's dark place, they become great encouragement to him. In the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul calls them his fellow workers in Christ Jesus and that they risked their lives for him. But I want you to see that even though Paul was encouraged there, he was still discouraged. And even in his discouragement, he never stopped the ministry God had called him into. He still goes into the synagogues to reason with them from the scriptures. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this in your life, especially in the last couple months. Maybe you feel like you're beaten up over and over and over. Then maybe a few good things happen, but you're not ready to trust those good things just yet. 
And in those times where you feel beaten up, do you still continue to trust Jesus? Or do you start to shrink back? Many times when things end up bad for a while, we end up in this funk like the Apostle Paul. Could be uh, your job, if you still get to go to it. It could be your job where it feels like you're never going to advance. It's the same thing day after day, this letdown. Maybe you're single and you're longing for marriage and you feel like you're never going to meet the one. Maybe you are married and you're in a home with the COVID-19, you're together all the time and it seems like it's very unhappy there. Uh, maybe you have had a terrible boss and you've got to deal with that person all the time. Maybe you live in America and you've got to deal with the same politicians every election cycle over and over. Or again, maybe it's like the COVID-19. Like Jennifer Whittaker said on Mother's Day a couple of weeks ago, that it feels like lather, rinse, repeat over and over and over. It's like Groundhog's Day. Every day we wake up, same thing. And a lot of times what we'll do is have this anticipation of what the fear and what the next day is going to bring into our lives, thinking it's going to be worse than it actually is. There's this old story. When Abraham Lincoln was on his way to Washington to be inaugurated as president, one question on a lot of people's minds was, can the country survive a civil war? So one of his advisors, a man named Horace Greeley, told him this antidote to maybe help quell his anxiety a bit. And Horace Greeley talked about how there are circuit magistrates, because back then every town didn't have a judge. So magistrates would ride to different towns and adjudicate different court cases and things like that. So they ended up in this town getting ready to cross this thing called the Fox River. Now the Fox River is very turbulent, and they don't know what the Fox River is going to hold for them the next day. So they find this circuit preacher who would ride around preaching the gospel in different places. And they say, hey, have you cross this river? And they say, yes. So they say, tell us about it. And this guy says, well, I know all about the Fox River. I've crossed it often and understand it well. But I have one fixed rule with regard to the Fox River. I never cross it till I reach it. Meaning there's nothing you can do about it till you see it. Meaning obsessing about something that hasn't happened never helps us which is really good advice where we are right now. Because God is bringing encouragement to Paul slowly and surely. I think Paul just has a hard time seeing it because of all the things that have happened to him at this point. Chapter 18, verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So two of Paul's closest friends, they catch up to him. They bring a couple things with them, other than the encouragement of them showing up together. First off, they are bringing Paul this really good news about the Thessalonian church, that this Thessalonian church who had a lot of persecution is actually standing firm. That's something Paul was worried about. You know this because 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul talks about that. The second thing they bring Paul is a gift from Philippi, a monetary gift to help furthering his ministry. This is why it can say that Paul was occupied with the word. It means that he could spend his time more freely talking about Jesus. So it says, Paul is occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Then verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him meaning the Jews in the synagogue. So it's like two steps forward, his friends come, it's great, but one step back. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul's reaction may be warranted, but hopefully you can see a little bit of the frustration that he's having at that point. I think he's just so downturned. He's like, I am just done with this. Paul is the guy who in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, will say he wishes he was cut off instead of his countrymen. And here it's like, I wash my hands of you and all of your garbage, and I'm out. I'm shaking the dust off my garments. Now, shaking the dust off is a rabbinical way of telling someone that you're done with the argument in this place. 
Now, Jesus will also tell his disciples this. In Luke chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, Jesus will say, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, when Jesus talks about that, Jesus is talking about proclamation and urgency. What he's kind of saying is, forget a bunch of the little idle chit-chat. Pray for people. When someone receives the message, stay there and spend time with them. But a lot of times he says what we do is we keep going after unripened fruit or even rotten fruit. Get out of our ladders, the kind of the top of the tree, start trying to yank this fruit off that's just not ready. What Jesus kind of says there is, go for the low-hanging fruit. You walk up to somebody and say, you want to know about Jesus? And they go, Flip you the finger and say, get out of here. Just be like, oh, okay. How about you? Ask another person. Harvest time is about fruit that is right in front of us. If someone asks you for a Bible, that is low-hanging fruit. Get them a Bible. Give them an element one if you don't have an extra one. They are free. Just tell them not to get it wet because if they get it wet, it's like one of those Fourth of July snakes and they go whoop like that. It's cheap to get what you pay for, but it's a Bible. Someone's life falls apart. Maybe right now with the coronavirus, with all of the things of feeling isolated and alone, and someone asks you for for help, that's a great place to talk about Jesus, low-hanging fruit. Harvest the easy stuff first. Let God work on harder hearts. Now, that could be through you because he's not saying ignore them, but you go for the low-hanging fruit first. Like who in your life, if you invited them to go to church when we can meet again or to watch a live stream or if your gospel community has some sort of event that's, that's sanctioned and okay or, or maybe if your family's having a dinner and you can invite somebody over into something like that, who would actually go? And if you know someone that would, well, you should invite them. Is there anyone, if you gave a Bible to them, they would actually read it? I mean, you, you might get some opposition in some places if and when you ask, but you will also run into some low-hanging fruit. And I have really almost never met anybody when you offer to pray for them who has said, no, I don't want you to pray for me. A lot of people, especially right now, are open to people praying for them. Jesus says, verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. That is not about being offended. That is not about your irritation, though Paul might have been irritated when he said it. This is more about speaking the truth. Kicking the dust off is not trying to shame somebody else. It's not trying to get all of your friends on your side and say, oh, that person's terrible and awful. It is like, do you have a friend? And every time you talk to them about Jesus, they just want to argue about everything. Well, pray for them, love them, but kick the dust off and go talk to somebody else. Go for some low-hanging fruit. Do you have someone who opposes you and has rejected your attempts to proclaim the gospel? Don't get mad. Don't get offended. Pray for them, love them, kick the dust off, and go talk to somebody else. Because truly learning how to kick the dust off correctly only happens when we trust that God is the one who brings people to the harvest and not us. We invest our time in people around us. Invest in those who are close to belief or maybe new believers who are struggling. Jesus even says that when you wipe or kick the dust off, you still remind them the kingdom of God has come near. So it's not like you're saying, I hope you're burning hell. What you're saying is God's grace and I will always be there for you. So what does Paul do? He kicks the dust off. Acts 18 verse 7 says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So Paul's like, kick the dust off. I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. This is a Gentile. Low-hanging fruit. How far is that away from that synagogue? His house was next door to the synagogue. That's great. Paul's like, I'm done. I'm going next door. So he goes, next door. And then what happens? What happens is this. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. What? 
together with this entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. It seems like that moment of Paul, when he does that, all these good things start to happen. Paul has all these reasons to be encouraged. Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, financial help, full-time ministry, encouraging results at this point, even though he does face opposition. But still in the midst of it all, he fell prey to fear and discouragement. And I think I want to follow this line for you today to help us to understand this a bit better. Because even in the midst of this depression, God is going to do something for Paul. He's going to remind Paul who he is, and that's going to set the course for the rest of Paul's ministry. As I said, probably, Paul probably had so many negative experiences, so many things back to back he never had a chance to really recover from. All these things weigh upon him. And with all these good things that are happening, Paul is still in one of the midst of the worst cultures for decadence in the known world. Maybe Paul is tempted to give up. Maybe he's tempted to give in. Like I have a friend I was recently talking to who lives in the midst of a very decadent place. It's a college town and, you know, college kids got hormones just coming out their ears and stuff. And he says it's very hard to stay pure in the midst of that culture. Now, don't get me wrong, I reminded him he decided to move there and live there, but that doesn't help a lot. And at this point, I don't know what my friend's going to do. He has a lot of immoral options open to him, just like Paul, to distract him from his depression. Now, for 500 years after this time, there was this verb that came out of to Corinthianize that meant to be sexually immoral. Because every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would descend from this thing called the Acro Corinth, the upper place in Corinth, to ply their trade in worship of Aphrodite. You could literally find anything you wanted in the town of Corinth if you had the money. It's, it's like the dark web. And Paul might have experienced culture shock in Athens, but there's a lot of moral shock taking place in the town of Corinth. One commentator writes this, It's sweat and perfume and grit smothered Paul's righteous soul, and he became depressed. Remembering his past experiences, he knew what could happen to him in Corinth, and the apostle, as a great servant of Christ as he was, became discouraged, fearful, and insecure. And I don't think I'm reading too much into that. But God is going to show up to Paul and do something amazing. He's going to speak some words that are good for all of us when we find ourselves in this place of depression and anxiety. And they're the same words that are spoken all the way back in the beginning of the Bible to this guy named Abraham. This is what happens. Acts 18 verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, so it's after all these good things are happening, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. What's the result? Verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now when we read the Bible, we have to first understand that not everything in it is written to us. Like the book of Acts was written to a guy named Theophilus. The words from God are given to Paul, but they are also written for us. The Bible is God's revelation to us. Many times people will say things like, well, how come in the midst of my depression, God doesn't come and speak to me like he did to Paul? Well, God does. Because Paul didn't have a New Testament. Paul had the Old Testament scriptures, but not the New Testament. Paul's writing some of those probably at at this moment. And, And what Paul does is he understands that God is saying, I am with you. He writes these words down, Luke does, so we can also know those words as well. God has said those words to us. They are written down for us. I am with you is God's most common promise in the scriptures. He says it so we can understand and trust Him no matter what we're going through. These are great words for anyone who is wondering if they should give up the battle. When we feel the unrelenting persistence of evil and temptation and sadness or feeling tired, God is with us. Kent Hughes, in writing about this passage, says this, When we feel that our finest hour is about to give way to our lowest, there is an antidote for our hopelessness. 
So, what does God say to Paul? Three things. The first one is fear not. How do we know that Paul was fearing, feeling this way? Not only does Paul say it, but God says it. And God knows Paul's heart, so God knows what's going on. Paul was afraid. And fear doesn't mean, oh, I'm hiding in the closet and afraid of everything around me. Fear could be, what if this is all there is to life? What if things don't get any better? What if the COVID-19 never goes away? What if the church never gets to meet again? Paul might have even feared success because every time there is success, a mob rises up and tries to kill him. Fear is that maybe it won't get better. Am I going to sit in this funk the rest of my life? It's kind of like Mother Teresa. She expressed doubt being in the middle of all of the suffering that she was. But even in the midst of that, and many times her funk of depression, she still went forward trusting God in the midst of it. Ben Young wrote this, All my heroes walk with a limp. They limp because their faith was forged in the fires of pain, suffering, and doubt. Paul is a hero of the faith, and Paul walks with a limp. And God comes up and he says, fear not. The second thing he tells Paul is, do not be silent. That doesn't mean just start babbling like, what what that means is keep ministering. Paul is someone who was mocked for his faith and his trust in God. A lot of times people didn't understand when he spoke about Jesus. And I've read a lot of things about what takes place here in Acts because right now I'm kind of in a funk. And so I want to learn some of this stuff. One commentator says this. It is to Paul's eternal credit and our ongoing edification that Paul obeyed and kept ministering. Paul, again, writes to the people in Corinth in his weakened condition about the power of God within him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3-5, through 5, Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then he goes on and says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, the demonstration of the Spirit's power, that doesn't necessarily mean miracles. It can mean the miracle that Paul is still speaking and moving forward in his ministry, even in that state. Lloyd Ogilvie once wrote this, When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel of his power. It seems so often for God's people that weakness is that secret strength that God puts most effective into his servants. So, fear not. Keep ministering. And then lastly, why is I am with you? I am with you. That is God's promised presence. John Wesley's very last words that he spoke that were recorded are, the best of all, God is with us. God's protection does not mean we're going to be free from difficulties, but God will never allow us to face any of those difficulties alone. He will always be with us. No eternal damage can ever befall us. I think we tend to forget this promise when we have trouble because our troubles many times feel just so near to us And God feels so far away. Our isolation, our depression, it just seems so near. But God is saying, it may be near, but I am still nearer than that. He is with us, and He promises never to leave us or forsake us. Now, according to what happens in the next verses we'll look at next week in verses 11 to 18, Paul then stays in Corinth for those 18 months. For him, that's like Paul putting down roots. And eventually, he'll be brought up on charges in front of this guy named Gallio, but they're dismissed. And for a time, Paul and his followers enjoy more freedom than ever before. Eventually, out of this year and a half, Paul will set out on what we call his third missionary journey. But it all starts in the place of the good news of God reminding Paul of God who he himself was. 
He was with them exactly where Paul was. If you've ever seen the movie 300, um, it's, a, it's about the Spartans. There's 300 of them facing off against the Persian army of thousands. And there's actually a historical line that's recorded in the movie. When Leonidas, the hero of the Spartans, was in battle against these invaders, one of his men said to him this, General, when the Persians shoot their arrows, there are so many of them that they darken the sky. And Leonidas replies with this, Then we will fight in the shade. And Paul is someone who many times felt that shadow and that shade over his life. But he served Jesus regardless of his feelings, no matter what he saw on the horizon. See, time and time again, the scriptures will tell us to fear not, that we stop worrying about tomorrow, but it doesn't just leave it there. God goes on and says, you don't have to worry about it. You can fear not because I am with you and God is with us. And in this time, if you are feeling weak and fearful, it can also be a moment to praise God. Because all of God's children has got, have gone through it, and God has been faithful through every bit of it. We rely on God to make His power perfect in our weakness, because when that happens, God gets the glory. Whatever gets accomplished, gets accomplished for Christ. All the glory goes to where it should be. And that's what we need to understand, is that no matter what happens, God is good. God is with us in the midst of exactly where we are. And who knows what the next few weeks or few months at this point are still going to look like in the state of California. But I will tell you this, that God is with us. God has not stopped loving us. God has not stopped leading us. God has not stopped being who He is. Calling us into salvation and grace and hope and life. So we can become a people who rest in that goodness of who He is. Now I'm going to ask the band to to come back up as they social distance, like I said, in in the room, wherever they are, that they would come back up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you, if you would like to, where you're at at home right now, if you would like to take communion, you can do that. You can grab some bread and some juice. Remember what Christ did in His death and resurrection, as Paul speaks about, to rescue and save us. That death and that resurrection of Jesus, God is showing us that He has never once left us. He has never once been in a place or left us in a place where He was not. Because of Jesus' hope and life that He gave for us, we can then be a people who live out in this world no matter what happens, no matter what takes place. Because our God is with us. And He proves that by His death and His resurrection. And if you would like to take communion to remember that, that's what we remember today, that God is with us in that. It's a remembrance of what Jesus did. And like we said, if you need prayer today, maybe you are feeling isolated and alone. You want someone to pray with you. Maybe you're in a funk right now. Uh, After our third service today at 1230, you can hop on to Zoom. There is that that prayer call. They would love to pray with you. If that feels a little awkward to you, you can send a a prayer email to us at connect at ourelement.org. If you're watching on YouTube on the side, you can even write it over there. uh, And people would love to pray for you about whatever's going on in your life. We are a people who believe that our God gave so much to us that giving is simply just always a part of the worship of who He is. So we invite you, if you'd like to give, you can give online from our website. Uh, You can mail uh, donations at 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. Uh, We as Element are giving and helping those around us as well. We haven't stopped. We continue to give and move forward because our God is a giver. And I would encourage you today maybe tomorrow with some time off because of Memorial Day, maybe this week, to sit down or maybe call a couple people who are close to you in your life and talk to the places where maybe you feel like you've been in a funk or check if they're in a funk if you're not. And maybe you can pray for them and come alongside them. 
Because even though we encourage one another many times, that stuff just still sits deep inside of us. So we can remind one another that our God is with us. He has not left us. And these words and this time that Paul spends in this place with these people, it kind of resets and rejuvenates him for what happens throughout the rest of the book of Acts. As we, as people, come alongside one another and rejuvenate one another by reminding each other who God is and His great rescue of us. Let's be a people who understand that our God has never once left us or forsaken us, that He has sought us and given us new life and who He is. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose from the grave, and the result of that is we get salvation, and God's promise to never leave us is always true because Jesus died and rose. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you, for the things that you have spoken and the things that you have said. I ask that we would begin to move forward, not shrinking back, but stepping forward in the places that you call us to, even sometimes when we're unsure, even sometimes when we feel a little overwhelmed. We would continue to move forward, trusting you, knowing that you are with us that our understanding of the good news of the gospel would so transform us that would take us in the places where maybe we feel like we are right now in this funk and remind us, like you reminded Paul, that sometimes it takes time to, to grow and work our way out of this, but yet you are with us through every step of that. The times when we feel like our isolation and our anxiety or our depression is so strong, you are still closer than that. So move our focus to be able to see and trust you because mighty is the power of your cross and your resurrection. Have us be a people who live in the hope that you continue to bring that are being hope to our desperate lives and we would then be able to speak that out to those around us. Thank you for rescuing and saving us. Thank you for always being with us. We ask all these things in your son's good name. Amen.